Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, March 11th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Regulators shut down Silicon Valley Bank. Xi Jinping secures a third term as China's president. At least seven are killed in a Jehovah's Witness Hall shooting in Hamburg. Iran and Saudi Arabia agree to restore relations. Wagner reportedly takes an operational pause in Bakhmut. The U.S. House votes unanimously to declassify intelligence related to the COVID lab leak theory. Ron DeSantis visits Iowa ahead of a potential presidential election bid. Twitter files journalists Matt Tabby and Michael Schellenberger testify before Congress. Human Rights Watch says Lebanon is failing to uphold the right to electricity. And a new report warns global freedoms and democracy are backsliding. In our top story, regulators shut down Silicon Valley Bank. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, CNN, New York Post, NBC, NPR Online News, and Reuters. Financial regulators have closed Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB, and taken control of its deposits, according to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, marking the largest U.S. bank failure since the 2008 financial crisis. As California regulators shut down the tech lender, the FDIC has taken over the receiver. The FDIC will likely liquidate the bank's assets to back its customers. And the agency says all insured depositors will have full access to their insured deposits no later than Monday. Amid rising interest rates and a recent meltdown in the tech sector, the SVB took a $1.8 billion hit from a $21 billion fire sale of bond holdings. The parent company, SVB Financial's shares, were down 60% on Thursday, and trading was halted on Friday as the bank was in talks to sell itself Friday morning. SVB was the 16th largest U.S. bank as of December 2022 and had $209 billion in assets, with more than $175 billion in deposits. Focusing on the booming tech sector, SVB grew rapidly, but post-pandemic layoffs led to a decline in the industry. The problems leading to SVB's collapse appear to be isolated to the bank itself. But the run on the bank sparked concerns about the industry as a whole. However, bank analysts at Morgan Stanley wrote, quote, We do not believe there is a liquidity crunch facing the banking industry. Banks around the world are experiencing severe financial worries, as global borrowing costs have risen at the fastest pace in decades. U.S. banks have lost over $100 billion in stock market value over the past two days, with European banks losing roughly $50 billion in value. All right, cross those facts with our first narrative, the pro-establishment narrative from CNN. While there is a fear that SVB's collapse is a sign of financial crisis similar to that of 2008, that is not the case. The problems that faced SVB were company-specific and tied specifically to the tech sector. The banking sector as a whole is stable and there is no need to worry about a new financial crisis. Zero Hedge gives us an establishment critical narrative. SVB's collapse was not surprising to anyone other than the global markets and so-called experts. Rising interest rates have caused massive losses that happen to have dramatically hit SVB first. But the problem is not isolated to SVB. Just like SVB, other banks will look to sweep their losses under the rug, and we will continue to see the largest collapses since 2008. 
Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. China's Xi Jinping wins a record third term. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, NBC, Fox News, CNN, and Al Jazeera. Chinese President Xi Jinping has achieved an unprecedented third five-year term as China's leader after the National People's Congress, or NPC, voted for him unanimously 2,952 to zero on Friday. Xi ran unopposed and had himself named to a third five-year term as party general secretary in October, despite Chinese leaders traditionally handing over power once every decade. In addition to extending his presidency, Xi was unanimously named commander of the People's Liberation Army, the formal name for China's military. Unlike many other countries, China's armed forces are led by the ruling party. Following the abolishment of presidential term limits in 2018, many believe that 69-year-old Xi's election puts him on a path to lifetime rule in China, as the nation faces a myriad of challenges including recovery from the zero-COVID policies and diplomatic tensions with the U.S. and West. Xi-approved officials are set to be appointed or elected to top positions over the next two days. Notably, Li Kang is expected to be named as premier, China's second-highest position, making him responsible for managing the world's second-largest economy. This comes as the NPC on Friday also approved major reforms, including the formation of a financial regulatory body and national data bureau, and a revamp of its science and technology ministry. All right, Scott, thank you for the facts. And we have a couple of spins. The first one is a pro-China narrative coming from Xinhua. Xi Jinping is the man to lead China to glory, just as he has been doing for the last decade. China has seen unprecedented innovation and modernization under Xi's leadership, rising to the world's second largest economy. Xi has also helped eradicate poverty and build the largest education, social security, and healthcare systems in the world. Xi is the people's president. And the anti-China narrative comes from Stockhead. China and its ruling party have completely desecrated themselves as Xi Jinping firmly took autocratic rule while NPC officials sycophantically clapped. Xi has only done things for himself and to consolidate his own power. Now he will implement even more agencies to lie on his behalf about China's numbers and promote propaganda for his regime. In our next story, disturbing news coming from Germany as a deadly shooting at a German Jehovah's Witness hall kills at least seven. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Associated Press, Al Jazeera, NBC, CBS, and Reuters. At least seven people were killed in a shooting at a Jehovah's Witness meeting hall in the German city of Hamburg on Thursday night. The gunman shot and killed six worshippers before taking his own life. Eight people were also wounded in the shooting, including a woman who was 28 weeks pregnant and lost the baby. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said the death toll may rise. The Hamburg state prosecutor said in a news conference with police on Friday that the shooter was a 35-year-old German citizen and a former Jehovah's Witness. Police say he used a semi-automatic pistol that he had legally owned since December. However, a motive has yet to be identified. Armed officers reportedly arrived four minutes after receiving 47 emergency calls about the shooting. Police say the swift response likely prevented more deaths at the religious meeting of 36 people. Police confirmed they previously received an anonymous letter claiming that the suspect, identified as Philip F., was mentally unstable and had shown anger towards Jehovah's Witnesses. A review of his firearms licensing was subsequently undertaken, and the suspect was questioned. 
However, the police found no suspicious behavior. Germany has some of the most strict gun laws in Europe, and the Interior Minister announced last year the government planned to further tighten gun laws after a suspected plot by a far-right group to overthrow the government. Thanks for those sad facts, Eric. We have a left narrative from Reuters. While gun control laws in Germany are already strict, more needs to be done to save lives and keep firearms out of the hands of dangerous people. The police were previously tipped off about the shooter and failed to screen him properly. This isn't the only mass shooting in recent years, and the recent threat of an armed coup underlines the importance of stringent gun regulations and mental health screenings. Breitbart gives us a right narrative. While this shooting is a tragedy and shouldn't have happened, the police did their due diligence and acted quickly to deter the shooter. The weapons authority was tipped off about the suspect and followed through appropriately, but didn't find any evidence that he was physically or psychologically unsuitable to own a firearm. While this particular case needs to be investigated, this doesn't mean that the laws need to change. These shooters are such cowards. You know, it's always a school or a church or some kind of soft target. You never hear about someone trying to shoot up the local National Reserve Armory or something. It's rare that they uh, don't take their lives as well. Even more cowardly. It's yeah. just, I mean, I, I, I'm sympathetic to mental health issues and things like that. And I'm sure some of these people are going through a lot. I'm not trying to paint it all with the same brush. But there's some patterns here. Iran and Saudi Arabia agree to restore diplomatic relations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, Al Jazeera, and The New York Times. Iran and Saudi Arabia announced on Friday a Chinese-brokered agreement to re-establish diplomatic relations after years of open hostility and proxy conflicts across the Middle East. Iranian and Saudi state media reported that both countries agreed to reopen their embassies within two months, re-implement a security cooperation agreement signed in 2001, and not interfere in each other's internal affairs. According to Iranian state media, reconciliation talks had been held in Beijing since March 6th, as the PRC has been seeking to expand its diplomatic foothold in the Middle East, with its leader Xi Jinping visiting Riyadh last December to attend summits with more than a dozen Arab leaders. This deal shakes up the geopolitics of the Middle East, indicating Beijing's growing influence in the region and potentially affecting the U.S.-Israel efforts to form a regional coalition against Iran. Riyadh and Tehran ended ties in 2016 after the Saudi embassy was stormed, with relations further deteriorating amid claims that the latter had carried out a drone attack on a Saudi oil facility in 2019, and that the first had funded media allegedly inciting mass protests in Iran in 2022. U.S. National Security Spokesman John Kirby told reporters during a press call that the Saudis had kept Washington informed of the de-escalation deal and seemingly downplayed China's role by stating that this roadmap is the result of multiple rounds of talks. Scott, thank you for the facts. The first spin is a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. This Chinese brokered deal between U.S. ally Saudi Arabia and U.S. rival Iran reveals how disastrous the Biden administration has been to U.S. interests in the Middle East. By not showing a clear commitment to the interests of its regional allies, the White House has pushed them into the arms of China and Russia, its main geopolitical enemies. And the Democratic narrative comes from the Jerusalem Strategic Tribune. While the U.S. and China are indeed competing for global leadership, Beijing's growing influence in the Middle East doesn't represent a threat to U.S. interests, except in some specific areas where it's moving to avert Chinese activism. China-brokered reconciliation talks between Iran and Saudi Arabia have de-escalated tensions, which is also good for the U.S. The conflict in Ukraine continues as we look at day 380 
as a U.S. think tank says that Wagner is taking an operational pause in Bakhmut. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Institute for the Study of War, the Daily Beast, Ukrainska Pravda, and Ukraine Forum. The Russian mercenary group Vodka PMC appears to have taken a temporary tactical pause in the fight for the Donetsk city of Bakhmut, according to analysis from the Institute for the Study of War, or ISW, a U.S. think tank covering military affairs. While ISW confirmed that Wagner appears to have captured Dubovo Vaslivka, a settlement northwest of Bakhmut in recent days, it stated that there have been no reports of Wagner fighters conducting offensive operations from eastern Bakhmut into central parts of the city since Russian forces captured all of eastern Bakhmut located east of the Bakhmutka River on March 7th. The think tank also pointed to statements from a Ukrainian military spokesman who said they've seen increasing numbers of conventional Russian troops building up near Bakhmut. ISW said the arrival of an increased number of conventional Russian forces to the area may suggest that Russian forces intend to offset the possible culmination of Wagner's offensive operations in Bakhmut with new conventional troops. While unconfirmed, the change may also reflect the growing discord between Wagner's head Yevgeny Prigozhin and the Kremlin. Last month, Prigozhin accused Russia's military leadership of treason due to ammunition shortages his group was facing, criticisms he repeated last week. If Wagner retreats from Bakhmut now, the whole front will collapse, he said, while warning of further cataclysms. On Thursday, in audio released by his press service, Prigozhin said his access to Kremlin communication channels have been severed. So that I stop asking for ammunition, my access to all special communication channels in all offices and units have been disconnected, and all passes to the departments responsible for decision-making have been blocked, he asserted. Elsewhere, law enforcement in Ukraine reportedly arrested a member of the country's intelligence and security service, the SBU, for allegedly justifying Russia's invasion of Ukraine. According to reports, the SBU operative approved of the annexation of Crimea, described the war as an internal civil conflict, and alleged that mass graves discovered in the Kiev suburb of Bucha had been a staged act. On the ground, after launching widespread missile strikes a day earlier, Russia launched renewed attacks overnight, striking the regions of Sumy and Dnipropetrovsk with artillery. There were no reports of civilian casualties at this stage. All right, thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from CNN. In leading Russia's charge of Bakhmut, Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin has risen to great heights. While his success may bring him a certain level of protection, the higher he ascends and seemingly challenges the authority of Russian President Putin, the harder he may fall. Putin has a history of sidelining political rivals. The pro-Russian narrative coming from TASS. Russian volunteer groups, including Wagner, continue to make progress in Bakhmut. This simply would not be possible if they did not have sufficient ammunition. Hence, these allegations are false. Attempts to drive a wedge between Wagner and the Russian military are distractions that only help the enemy. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 50% chance that Vladimir Putin will cease to hold the office of President of Russia by September of 2025. The U.S. House votes unanimously to declassify intelligence related to the origins of COVID. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, ABC News, The National, NBC News, Minnesota Reformer, and The Hill. On Friday, the U.S. House of Representatives voted unanimously 419 to 0 to require the Biden administration's Director of National Intelligence to declassify all information related to the Wuhan Institute of Virology and potential links to COVID origins. 
The bill goes next to President Biden for signature, but even if Biden vetoes the bill, there are enough votes for a veto override. The disclosure would need to occur 90 days after it is signed into law. This comes as earlier this week on Wednesday, the U.S. House of Representatives Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic, chaired by Republican Brad Wenstrup of Ohio, met for its first hearing to discuss and investigate the origins of the virus. The subcommittee, an extension of the Oversight and Accountability Committee, was initially formed in April of 2020 by former President Donald Trump to oversee the U.S.'s response to the pandemic. House Republicans probed a panel of scientists, including former Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Robert Redfield, over the matter. The experts stated the virus may indeed have originated from a research facility in Wuhan, despite acknowledging that there was no definitive evidence. The two leading hypotheses explaining the origin of the virus are that COVID either moved from an animal to the human population or that it evolved in a laboratory involved in gain-of-function research. Both Republicans and Democrats have claimed that determining the origins of the virus could help prepare the U.S. and the rest of the globe for future pandemics. Redfield testified that he believes the lab leak hypothesis, based on the biology of the virus itself, and alleged that such a viewpoint had been sidelined during the pandemic. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the former top COVID official under Trump and Biden, who was absent from the hearing, has denied being responsible for excluding Redfield. In addition, author Nicholas Wade, a witness who stated his belief that the virus originated in a research lab in Wuhan, came under scrutiny from Democrats on the committee for his controversial 2014 book, which has been endorsed by known white supremacists. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. A right narrative is coming from Daily Mail. The world is finally admitting the truth and coming to the realization that the concealment of China's role in the origins of COVID is one of the greatest scandals in world history. Those who previously supported the idea were labeled racists and conspiracy theorists and faced ridicule in the mainstream media. It is now time to hold China and the corrupt forces that have continued to suppress this news to account. And the left narrative comes from the Los Angeles Times. The earliest COVID cases were located in very close proximity to, and their spread centered around, the Huanin animal market. Given the relative likelihood that the virus was spread from animal populations, this would either constitute wild coincidence or a clear indicator of virus origins. And while people should remain open to all possibilities, there's still a lack of any credible evidence that the virus originated from a laboratory. And as expected with a story like this, there is a nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. It says there's a 38% chance that by January 1st, 2025, at least two public health agencies will claim that COVID more likely than not originated in a laboratory. Ron DeSantis visits Iowa ahead of a potential presidential bid. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Washington Post, Fox News and Associated Press. Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on Friday visited Iowa, an early nominating state in U.S. presidential campaigns, for the first time, amid reports he has decided to run in the 2024 race. DeSantis has not officially announced his candidacy, but has reportedly told people privately that he's going to join the race. In addition to his trip to Iowa, DeSantis will visit Nevada on Saturday. The forming Thursday of a pro-DeSantis PAC called Never Back Down was another indication of DeSantis's plans. At an Iowa casino, DeSantis touted his record and criticized President Biden on crime, immigration, and other issues. He said, we get things done and in the process, we beat the left day after day, week after week, month after month. 
DeSantis trails just former President Trump according to early polling for the race for the GOP nomination. DeSantis has risen to prominence because of his opposition to COVID restrictions and his battles with the media and teachers' unions. DeSantis' visit to Iowa comes three days before Trump, who late last year announced his third run for president, will visit the state. Whoever wins the Republican nomination will most likely face Biden in the general election, although he has yet to officially announce his re-election bid. Unsurprisingly, Eric, we have three opposing political narratives on this story. Let's start with the Republican narrative from Town Hall. It's been decades since Republicans have been able to look toward an executive as effective as DeSantis, whose positive impact on Floridians has been great and continues to grow. The grassroots energy is all going toward this great leader and fighter, and it could push DeSantis to the GOP nomination and then the White House. Either way, it'll be a vibrant primary against Trump. Newsweek brings the pro-Trump narrative. This is Trump's time for a resurgence, and DeSantis shouldn't get in the way now. There's no reason to create discord in the party. DeSantis, who's been a great governor, should serve out his term, and then he could consider a future presidential run. He needs more experience before he gets in the mix for such a big job. And the Democratic narrative comes from Axios. Whether it's Trump or DeSantis doesn't matter because both represent the worst of the Republican Party with their extreme right positions and culture war politics. Women and working-class voters in rural counties, which Biden has prioritized, are most likely going to vote for Democrats if Republicans tie themselves to the former president or the governor. Tabby and Schellenberger testify before Congress in reference to the Twitter files. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Post, Daily Mail, National Review, Newsweek, Fox News, and The Hill. Twitter files reporters Matt Tabby and Michael Schellenberger testified before the House as witnesses in a hearing for the House Judiciary Subcommittee on Weaponization of the Federal Government on Thursday. Tensions were high as House Democrats grilled Tabby and Schellenberger, referring to them as so-called journalists, while demanding they reveal their sources at the hearing. Chairman Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, criticized the cozy relationship between big tech and government agencies, which the Twitter files disclosed in leaks regarding the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story and coordination between Twitter and intelligence agencies. Just before testifying, Tabby released a new installment of the Twitter files about the censorship industrial complex, which characterized agencies such as the FBI and Department of Homeland Security, as well as large non-governmental organizations, as regularly consulting with Twitter to suppress information that may have led to COVID vaccine hesitancy. After referring to the two reporters as so-called journalists, ranking Democrat from the Virgin Islands Stacey Plaskett called Tabby and Schellenberger two of Elon Musk's public scribes while questioning how they access Twitter's data. Tabby gained recent national recognition for his reporting in the Twitter files, with his first leak on Hunter Biden's laptop recording 143 million impressions and 30 million engagements. He, along with Schellenberger and Barry Weiss, has come under fire from Democrats and left-leaning outlets for his reporting. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. We have a couple of spins. The first one is a right narrative coming from Breitbart. Big tech has been colluding with and operating as a de facto branch of the federal government as it looks to squelch dissent. And Democrats are losing their minds. Woke, unhinged House Democrats tried to force Matt Tabby to reveal his sources for the Twitter files and resorted to pejorative attacks because they cannot stomach the truth being revealed. And the left narrative comes from Real Clear Politics. The Twitter files is an illegitimate right-wing dachshund dump orchestrated by Elon Musk, with Matt Tabby doing the bidding of Twitter's volatile CEO, 
Tabby has taken a clear partisan stance, which violates the Society of Professional Journalists' code of ethics, and he is clearly functioning as more of a reactionary right-wing operative than a journalist. In our next story, Human Rights Watch says that the Lebanon government is failing to uphold the right to electricity. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Naharnet, ReliefWeb, Reuters, and The National. In a report released on Thursday, Human Rights Watch said that the Lebanese government has failed to uphold the right to electricity by mismanaging the sector for decades, especially since Lebanon's economic crisis began in late 2019. The U.S.-based watchdog outlined how many middle- and working-class families have been forced to spend most of their monthly income on private generators, which are often run by organized crime groups or people affiliated with political parties. Most families surveyed said that generator bills have impacted their ability to pay for food as well as for medical and other crucial services. The 127-page report claimed decades of mismanagement and neglect, elite capture of state resources, alleged corruption, and vested interests caused the sector to collapse in 2021 amid the ongoing economic crisis, leaving the country without power through most of the day. Lebanon is currently suffering one of the worst economic crises in modern history, as the Lebanese pound has rapidly depreciated over the last three years and banks have imposed informal capital control laws, locking depositors out of most of their savings. Lebanon's compounding political, economic, and social crises have reportedly led to over two-thirds of the population falling into poverty, and the Lebanese state has become essentially non-existent. Lebanon is currently without a president, which is reserved for a Maronite Christian due to political infighting. Hezbollah, an Iranian-backed armed group and political party that's the most powerful force in the country, has said it will back Suleiman Frangay, who hails from an established political family in the north of the country. Thanks for that rundown, Eric. We have Narrative A from Human Rights Watch. The Lebanese government and elite have failed their people due to greed, incompetence, hubris, and delusions. The Lebanese system has created a crisis so big, on paper, one would assume that Lebanon is currently engulfed in a civil war. All the parties and political forces in the country are to blame for Lebanon's situation, and the only path forward is a complete overhaul of the Lebanese state. The Foundation for the Defense of Democracies is giving us Narrative B. Though there are many who like to pretend that all of Lebanon's political forces are to blame for its current problems, there's only one true source of Lebanon's troubles, Hezbollah. Iran now occupies Lebanon with an iron fist, and consequently, the country has been ruined like all the other countries in which Iran has intervened. The situation in Lebanon will only improve once Iran and Hezbollah have been kicked out of the country. Narrative C comes from the gray zone. Hezbollah is one of the only positive forces in Lebanon. Besides the fact that it has defended the country from Israeli aggression on multiple occasions, the group has made a concerted effort to cross sectarian lines and work with other communities to help the country. Lebanon's collapse is due to Western meddling, which has made life for the average Lebanese even harder. And once again, the Metaculous Prediction community is chiming in with their nerd narrative, saying there's a 50% chance that there will cease to be a Maronite president of Lebanon, a Sunni prime minister of Lebanon, or a Shia speaker of parliament of Lebanon by March 2031. Our final story, a report that global freedoms and democracy are backsliding, but optimism remains. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Freedom House, Axios, Al Jazeera, and NPR Online News. In its 50th annual report, the U.S.-based nonprofit Freedom House found an overall decline in global freedom 
led by concerns about free expression, with press freedom coming under pressure in at least 157 countries. The report, however, states that there may be hope for improvement in the future. The Freedom in the World 2023 report indicates that authoritarianism and the erosion of democracy have been among the most notable global trends of the past decade. The report finds cause for optimism as it says, those trends seem to be reversing in some parts of the world. A leading cause of declining freedoms in 2022 is Russia's invasion of Ukraine, successive coups in Burkina Faso, and consolidation of power in Tunisia. A country's freedom is evaluated by researchers based on 10 political rights and 15 civil liberty indicators. Researchers measure everything from electoral processes and the health of political pluralism to freedom of expression, association, and the rule of law. Last year, freedom declined in 35 countries, including Nicaragua and Tunisia, and improved in 34 countries. By comparison, in 2020, 73 countries were expected to see declines in freedom, while 28 were expected to see improvements. The report gave perfect scores to Finland, Norway, and Sweden. The worst scores went to North Korea, Eritrea, Turkmenistan, South Sudan, Syria, and Tibet. China and Saudi Arabia were ranked among the worst of the worst. The U.S. maintained its overall rating of 83 out of 100 in this year's Freedom in the World report. It gained a point in political rights due to last year's largely peaceful midterm elections, but lost a point in civil liberties due to increased restrictions on access to abortion. Those were the facts, and we have a couple of spins, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Los Angeles Times. We live in a world of brutality and turmoil. Freedom, democracy, and human rights are on the decline around the world and losing ground in many countries. As the Freedom House has shown in its annual report, the world has been struggling against a tide of democratic backsliding for 17 years. Democracy may be flawed, but as we've all heard, it beats the alternative. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the Washington Post. Freedom House's seven-point scale may look scientific, but the ratings are highly subjective. Audiences adopt ratings that reflect their values. This explains why Freedom House ratings are used predominantly in the Western world. Countries with similar foreign policies also get better scores in the Freedom House Index than in other research institute surveys. There are often hidden biases in the complex analysis of assessing the health of democracies worldwide. We have our final nerd narrative of today's podcast coming from Metaculous Prediction Community, and they say there's a 50% chance that at least 53.4% of the world's population will live in a democracy in 2040. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, March 11th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. If you'd like more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.